Acts 22 this morning, but we'll start reading from verse 40 of the previous chapter, the last verse of chapter 21. It says, And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this day. We thank you, Lord, that we are able to gather in this place and to uh, sing praise into your name, to worship you, <clears throat> and that, Lord, we're able to come around your word and spend some time considering the, the truths contained therein. We pray, Lord, that this morning you would speak to our hearts through your word, that, Lord, you would teach us, instruct us uh, through the truths that are contained therein. Lord, I pray that you would empower me this morning as your servant to speak, that it would be uh, your words and your thoughts, and that, Lord, you and you alone would receive all the honor and glory this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, as we just read, chapter 21 ended uh, on like a cliffhanger, if you like, and then with the chief captain giving Paul license to address the crowd, address, address the people. And he was given that permission there in verse 40 and he turns, he beckons with his hand and the the people fell silent and then Paul began to speak. And chapter 22 records for us his words, records for us what he said unto the gathered crowd. And Paul begins this address here in chapter 22 uh, with a formal and respectful appeal to his audience. He starts out in verse 1 there, he says, Men... Brethren and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. Paul is very respectful here as he begins his address. He starts out with the words, men, brethren, and fathers. He politely and respectfully addresses them all. And throughout the book of Acts, you see a similar address used often. uh, Often we see the address men and brethren used. Just those two words. Uh, Acts chapter 15 verse 7 is just one example. We have... Uh, Peter, it says, Peter rose up and said unto them, men and brethren. And that happens a few times throughout the book of Acts. You see that address used, that respectful address. But here Paul adds to it fathers. He says, men, brethren, and fathers. And what that suggests to us is that in the crowd, there is possibly some of the members of the Sanhedrin, okay, some of the, the council of the Jews. And so Paul is respectfully addressing them as well here. Now, Stephen used a similar expression when he faced the council years earlier. If you just go quickly to Acts chapter 7, just very quickly, Acts chapter 7 and verse 2. It says, and he said, this talking about Stephen, it says, and he said, men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, therefore, but before he dwelt in Turan. And so here you have Stephen, he's addressing the council and he uses the, this same respectful address. And so Paul here is using it for a similar reason. He's respecting all those who are present in the audience here. Uh, it's, it's interesting that Paul doesn't start out by trying to get them offside. He's trying to respectfully engage with his audience here. Now having respectfully addressed them all, Paul now begins to give his defense. And he, he asks them here, he says, Hear my defense. He says, men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense. That word defense there is the Greek word apologia. 
from which we get our, um, our word apology. Okay, and it means a plea, answer, clearing of self, or defense. And it's used here to speak about much more than Paul giving a defense against the charges. That is involved. But it's speaking about more than that. It's speaking about Paul also here giving a positive witness for Christ and the Christian faith. Okay, he's doing more than just addressing the charges. He's addressing his faith in Christ. It's from this Greek word that we get the theological term apologetics. It comes from this very word. Okay, and that's what Paul is doing here. He's giving a defense of the faith. You know, Paul here is doing what Peter tells us to do in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, where it says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That word answer there is this same Greek word, apologetic, apologia, okay, this apology. And so that's the whole idea here. He's given an answer. He's given a defense, not only to the accusations, but a defense of the faith, a defense of his faith in Christ. And so he's defended against the charge of disloyalty to the Jewish people and to the Jewish traditions, the law, the customs. And at the same time, he's demonstrating that he is being faithful to God in his preaching of Christ. That's what he's trying to do here. He wants to address the accusations against him, but also show that, hey, I'm doing God's will. I'm doing what God wants me to do. And in verse 2, we're told that he communicates to them in the Hebrew tongue. Okay, It says, And when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence and he saved. He speaks under the Hebrew tongue. He speaks them in their common language. And when he does that, what happens is that they fall even more silent. They're even more respectful and listen to Paul here because he's actually addressing them in Hebrew. If he addressed them in Greek, they probably wouldn't have listened to him as, as much. Okay, Because he speaks to them in the Hebrew tongue, they listen, they pay attention. And so Paul, he has their attention. He has the attention of this mob. They fall in silent. They're listening to him. And Paul now gives his defense or his apologia, his defense of his faith. And he starts out, first of all, by giving his credentials as a Jew. That's our first point this morning. He gives his credentials as a Jew. We start in verse 3 there. It says, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarshish, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of, our, of the fathers, and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. So he begins his defense here by asserting his credentials as a Jew to this Jewish audience. In verse 3, he declares that he's a full-blooded Jew. He says, I'm a man which am, barely, which am a Jew. Okay? He's declaring that he's a full-blooded Jew. He's not a, a half-breed. He is a full-blooded Jew born in the city of Tarshish. And so he wasn't born in the land of Israel. He's born outside of Israel, but he's declaring, I'm a full-blooded Jew. He, there's no doubting here Paul's Jewish heritage. You know, Paul later on would write in Philippians chapter 3 about his Orthodox Jewish heritage. Let's turn there, Philippians 3. <coughs> Just turn there quickly, Philippians 3. And verse 5 there. Philippians 3 verse 5, it says, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. 
speaks about his Orthodox Jewish heritage here. And he says he was circumcised the eighth day. Okay, that basically is a rite of initiation, if you like, into the Jewish nation. Okay, the young boys would be circumcised on the eighth day. It's their rite of passage into the nation, uh, identifying you as a Jew. He says that he was of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. What that indicates to us is that he could trace his lineage. Okay, he wasn't unsure of where he came from. He knew his tribe. He could trace his lineage through Benjamin, right back to the patriarchs. And he declares also that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And that signifies that even though he was born outside of the land of Israel, in Tarshish, he had retained all of the Jewish customs and traditions. He had been brought up to respect all those things, and he retained Jewish language. You see, Paul is trying to get them to understand here that he's not what they're accusing him of. He's trying to get them to understand his credentials as a Jew. In verse 3, he goes on to state that not only that, he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. Okay? It says, I am verily a man, which am a Jew, born in Tarshish, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city, Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, this added something special to his credentials. This was you know, an, an added special bonus, if you like, a tick next to his name. Gamaliel was the most respected Jewish teacher in his day. In Acts chapter 5, we, we saw him earlier on. Let's just turn back there. Acts chapter 5. In Acts 5 and verse 34, it says, Then, then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. Notice that Luke says there, he says, had in reputation among all the people. The point is, he was highly respected. This man, Gamaliel, he was highly respected, highly esteemed amongst the Jews. And so without doubt, for Paul to have been trained by someone like this, this added credentials, didn't it? This added something special to his name to his credentials before this Jewish crowd. We're not told how old Paul was when he came to be trained in Jerusalem, to receive this training from Gamaliel. Um, Some are of the opinion that he was brought to Jerusalem while he was still very young, and that he spent his formative years in Jerusalem. And I make that assumption based on the phrase there in verse 3, where it says, brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. So they They say he was brought up in the city. So they make the assumption that he came when he was very young and he grew up in Jerusalem. However, the term brought up here can also mean educate or educated in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. And so others are of the opinion that he came to Jerusalem after his coming of age ceremony. Okay, At the age of 13, uh, Jewish boys go through this this coming of age ceremony. And it was after this time that most of them if they were going to be trained, would enter into a school of training under a rabbi. Okay? And so others are of the opinion that it's after he's 13 that he comes to Jerusalem. Now, we can't say for certain which way it is. Okay? We can't say for certain when he came to the city of Jerusalem. But we do know that he received his training here, it says, at the feet of Gamaliel. And this refers to the fact that the rabbi apparently would usually sit on a raised seat in the middle of the room, and the pupils would sit around on the, on the ground or on lower seats. They would sit in a circle. And so they would be sitting at his feet. 
as he taught them. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel and listened as he taught. I was one of his pupils. And Paul goes on, he says that he was taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers. This phrase here, perfect manner of the law, this refers to the meticulous instruction that he received in the law. Okay, the, the, the law of Moses, you know, the Old Testament scriptures. He received meticulous instruction in these things. It probably also refers to his strict uh, legalistic instruction as a Pharisee. You know, he was part of that sect, and so he's been brought up to strictly adhere to the law. And all this background information here is given to argue the points that Paul now makes, he says, and was zealous toward God. He's arguing that point. He's demonstrating he was brought up a Jew. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He was taught everything about the law, to respect the law. And he was zealous toward God. See, the point is, he wasn't an apostate from the Jewish faith, was he? He wasn't someone opposed to the Jewish traditions and the, and the law of God, the customs of the Jews. Rather, he was someone who had been brought up by the most respected teacher, taught at the feet of Gamaliel. He was taught in the strictness of the Pharisaical sect to respect the law. Indeed, Paul was someone who was zealous toward God and the law. You see, in fact, his zeal for God, his zeal for the law and his country differed little from those who were present in the crowd before him. You see, he concludes verse 3 with that statement. He says, and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. Paul is basically here, before anything else, he starts out by identifying with the crowd. That's what he's doing. He's identifying with them. He's saying, I was just like you. Brought up the same way. Brought up to respect the law. Brought up to be zealous for, towards God and the law. Just as you are this day. He's identifying with them. He's making sure they understand that he was no different to them. You see, the reason they were so against Paul is because they were zealous for God and the law. That's why they were angry with Paul, wasn't it? It was their zeal. You see, they thought they were doing the right thing. And Paul could identify with them because he'd been in that position. That same position. He was brought up with that same zeal. You see, it was this zeal that caused him to persecute the church, wasn't it? And that's what he now goes on to state in verse 4. He says, And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Paul says, Because of this zeal, his zeal for God, his zeal for the Lord, the traditions of the Jews. He says, I persecuted this way unto death. Now, as we've seen before in the book of Acts, the term this way here was a descriptive term used to speak of the Christians, the early Christians. It was used by the church as a name speaking about the fact that they followed the only way of salvation, okay, the way. But amongst the unbelieving Jews, it was a derogative term. You know, they're of the way. They're doing their own thing. They're doing something different. And Paul, in his zeal for God, his zeal as a Jew, he had persecuted the way, Christians, arresting men and women and, and delivering them into prisons. And he says, even unto death. Even unto death. You see, in this sense, Paul could claim, if you like, to be even more zealous for God 
even more zealous for the law than the crowd before him. See, there was probably no one in that crowd who could claim that they came anywhere near Paul's zeal before he got saved. They probably couldn't claim they came anywhere near the zeal that he had shown in persecuting the church, chasing the church everywhere, all over the place, seeking Christians to bring them to prison and put them to death. As I said before, it's true that they had zeal towards God. It was that zeal that led them to be enraged against Paul. But you see, it was only as a mob that they had the courage to do anything about it. It was a mob mentality. Paul was different, wasn't he? Paul was this one man with a cold determination seeking out believers wherever he could find them to put them to death, put a stop to it. You see, he had more zeal, didn't he? More zeal for the law, more zeal than they did. His determination to eliminate all believers. Now in verse 5, he goes on to tell him, he says, you can confirm my zeal by asking the high priest and asking the council. He says there in verse 5, he says, as also the high priest doth bear me witness and all the estate of the elders from whom also I received letters unto the brethren and went to Damascus to bring them which were, bound, were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. He says, you want to make sure I'm telling the truth about my zeal? Ask the high priest. Ask the elders, the, the Sanhedrin, you ask them because they know of my zeal. They're the ones who gave me the authority. They're the ones who gave me the letters saying I could go and do these things. In particular, they've given him letters of authority to go to Damascus and to bring any Christians he found there back to Jerusalem to face charges. And so the high priests and the council, they were witnesses to the fact that Paul was declaring the truth here. No one could say, you're lying, you're, you're a liar. They couldn't claim that. Everyone knew Paul had this kind of zeal. And so his earlier persecution of the church was overwhelming evidence for this zeal toward God and towards the law and the Jewish faith. You see, through these many strands of evidence, his birth, his training, his religious orthodoxy, his zeal for God, Paul has established here his credentials before the mob. He sought to demonstrate that he was zealous for Jewish heritage just like they are. He was no different from any of them. And therefore, he's not guilty of the accusation they laid against him in chapter 21, verse 28. If you go back there, Acts 21, verse 28, it says, Crying out, man of Israel, help. This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law, and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and have polluted this holy place. The accusation against him was that he taught people against the people, against the law, against this place, the temple. The accusation was that he was against all these things. And Paul says, no, I was more zealous than you are for these things. So he's establishing here his credentials as a Jew. And having established clearly his background, identifying with the zeal of these people before him. Paul now goes on to explain what changed him. You see, he's saying, I, I was just like you, but then something happened. Something changed me. Let me tell you about it. That's what he's doing here. He wants to tell them how he went from persecutor to preacher of the truth. And that's his, the second point here this morning. We see his conversion to Christ, his conversion to Christ. In verse 6 we read, And it came to pass 
that as I made my journey, there was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. We could read the rest, but we'll save it for a minute. You know, in the book of Acts, Paul's conversion experience is recorded for us on three separate occasions. There's three accounts of it. The first is back in chapter 9, which we looked at quite a while ago now. And in chapter 9, it's written in the third person because Luke is the one giving us the accounts. While this account here in chapter 22 and the one in chapter 26 are written in the first person because Paul is actually speaking. Paul is giving his testimony, his own recollection of the events. So he's giving in his own words here his testimony of salvation to the Jews. That's what he's doing. He's saying, I was just like you, full of zeal for God and the law, the Jewish traditions. And he says, and then this happened. My salvation, let me tell you about it. And he begins by relating how on the way to Damascus, he was stopped in his tracks by a bright light from heaven. As we read in verse 6, And it came to pass that, as I made my journey, and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. You know, Paul tells us here that, well, tells the crowd, he tells us as well, that this took place about noon. Now, that's a piece of information that you won't find in chapter 9. Luke didn't include that. Luke didn't say it was at noon. But it's an important piece of information because it shows that this event occurred when the sun was at its brightest. This is not, you know, at the end of the day. This is not at the start of the day. It's not during the night. It's in the middle of the day when the sun is at its absolute brightest. And this light was strong enough to outshine the midday sun. What's Paul getting at here? He's pointing out this is the glory of God. You see, in the Old Testament, light is associated with the manifestation of God's glory. The Shekinah glory. You see, the only light able to outshine the midday sun is the glory of God. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying the glory of God shone around me. And so he starts out on his conversion story. Where does he start with? He says, God spoke to me. That's where he's starting. He's starting by saying the God of our fathers, the God of Israel. He's saying he's the one who's speaking to me here. And Paul goes on to tell how immediately he fell to the ground and he heard a voice asking him, why are you persecuting? Verse 7, it says, And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He hears this voice crying out saying, why are you persecuting me? What does Paul do in response? He says, who are you? Verse 8, he says, And I answered, who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. He cries out, he says, who's speaking? Who's the one talking to me? And the response is that Paul gives here, he says, Jesus of Nazareth. And here we see another difference in Paul's account to the one in chapter 9. You see, in chapter 9, Luke says that the response was, I am Jesus. But here, Paul adds Jesus of Nazareth. It's an important point, because who is he speaking to here? He's talking to a Jewish audience. And so by saying Jesus of Nazareth, he's making sure they understand who he's referring to. He's making sure they understand the point that this is the one they crucified not that long ago. You see, they all knew the place, and they all knew the person who bore that name. They were well aware 
As soon as he said, Jesus of Nazareth, the light bulbs are beginning to go on. They begin to understand what Paul's saying. See, Paul is making sure they understand fully what this all means, this event on the road to Damascus. The light from heaven was the glory of God. And the one speaking to him from that glory is Jesus of of Nazareth. The very one that he was persecuting, the very one he was against. In other words, Jesus is God. That's the revelation here, isn't it? Jesus is God. This is the realization that Paul came to on the road that day himself. He realized that the the people he was persecuting, the people he was going to Damascus to find, they were the true worshippers of God. They're the ones worshipping God, and he's actually against God. As Romans 10 verse 2 states, Paul had a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. He had a lot of zeal, but he didn't have knowledge of the truth. And Paul here is trying to get his audience to understand and see that truth as well. That Jesus of Nazareth is their Messiah. He is the Son of God. Now Paul continues on with his account in verse 9, explaining briefly that those who were with him heard not the voice. Okay, it says, and... They that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. Just briefly, you know, he looks at who else was traveling with him and gives an account of what happened to them. He says that they heard not the voice. And again, this seems to be different from what Luke stated in chapter 9. In chapter 9, verse 7, it says, And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no man. So Luke said in chapter 9, they heard a voice. Paul says here, they heard not the voice. What's going on? Is there a contradiction in Scripture? Well, no. The word heard here in verse 9 can also mean understood. And so Paul says they understood not the voice. They understood not the voice. They heard a sound. They heard someone speaking to Paul, but they didn't understand what was said. They didn't understand what was going on. They didn't understand this conversation. And Paul then continues on in verse 10 to say how he responded. It says in verse 10, And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. Paul's response to all this was to say, What shall I do, Lord? You know, Paul's use of the title Lord here indicates that Paul now understands who he's speaking to. He understands that Jesus of Nazareth is God. He's recognizing him as Lord. He believed and acknowledged Christ as God. And then his question, what shall I do, reveals his humble submission here too. He humbly submits now to the will of God, the will of Christ for his life. You see, this is the point where Paul gets saved. This is the point in his life. He is, he's acknowledged who Christ is. He's placed his trust in him. And this is where the change takes place in Paul. He's gone from Saul to being Paul. This is where the, the change takes place. This is where he goes from being the great persecutor of Christ and the church to being a humble servant of the Lord and preaching and teaching of Christ. You know, response to his surrender to the Lord Paul is commanded to go to Damascus and await further instructions. Okay, It says there in verse 10 again, And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go into Damascus, 
And there it shall be told, of thee, told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. You know, Paul is now given instructions. The Lord says, go to Damascus and wait and I'll tell you more. And Paul obeys. And he's led by the hand of his traveling companions because he's still blinded by the glory of the lights. And he goes to Damascus and he awaits instructions as to what God now wants him to do with his life. You see, Paul, with this account of the events on the road to Damascus here, is making the point that yes, he had a zeal for God, a zeal like all of these Jews before him. But then something changed in his life. Who made that change? He says it was God. God made the change. God met him on the road to Damascus. Their God. Remember, he's talking to the Jews. He says, it was our God. It was the God of our fathers, the God of Israel who met me. And the result of it was a supernatural change, wasn't it, in Paul's life. You know, Paul's heart's desire is that the crowd before him would come to that same realization, that they would realize that Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is their Messiah. He is the one they were waiting for. And that he is alive and he is in heaven. He is the eternal son of God. That's what Paul wants them to understand. He says, I met the Lord on the road to Damascus, our Savior, our Messiah. And the drastic change that took place in Paul's life was testimony to that truth, wasn't it? For someone to be so radically changed and no one in that crowd could deny the change, could they? No one could deny that Paul was this great persecutor. Someone with so much zeal against the church. And all of a sudden he's completely changed to being a man who preaches the truth, preaches Christ. No one could deny the complete change in his life, the radical change, to go from persecutor to preacher. The point is it can only be explained by the work of God in his life. And that's what he wants them to understand. He wants them to understand, I haven't forsaken the Jewish faith. I've realized that Christ is our Messiah. And God revealed it to me. You know, as I was thinking about Paul here giving his testimony, you know, all of us have a testimony of salvation, don't we? And our testimony of salvation supported by the testimony of our life, our Christian life, is a powerful tool in declaring the truth. It's a powerful tool in declaring the gospel message unto those around us. You see, like Paul, we can identify with the unsaved, can't we? We were just as they are, unsaved, lost on our way to hell. You know, whether we got saved at a young age or later in life doesn't change the fact that we were lost sinners just like they are, on our way to hell. But at the point of salvation, there is a radical change in our lives, isn't there? There's a radical change brought about by our faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit now dwelling within. There's a change. And that change should be now evident in our life so that we can give our testimony and people can see the difference. And maybe through that lead people to Christ. That's what Paul's trying to do here, isn't it? He's trying to use his testimony to bring his brethren, the Jews, to the knowledge of Christ as their Messiah. And we shouldn't be afraid to give our testimony for the same reason. To tell others of the change that God has made in their lives. You know, Paul here is not finished, not by a long shot. But we don't have time this morning to, to finish it. 
And so tonight we're going to go on and we're going to look at the second part here where Paul speaks about his commission from the Lord, his calling from the Lord. And we'll talk about that this evening. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. The great example that he is to each and every one of us, Lord, of someone who is willing to boldly stand up and declare his, his testimony of salvation, identifying with the hearers, declaring that he was just like they are. He was a zealous. And Lord, you made a change in his life, and he used that zeal then for you. And Lord, I pray you help us, Lord, to be bold in our declaration of the change that you've made in our lives. And may, Lord, that change be evident to those around us. Lord, we pray you bless now as we close. We pray these things in Jesus' name. As we close this morning, 467. 467, since I have been redeemed. Let's stand and sing. First and last, 467.